Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello from Buffalo, and welcome to In Social Work. My name is Luann Back, and I'll be your host for this episode. LGBTQ youth are largely overrepresented within the child welfare system. In addition to facing a number of challenges, including abuse, neglect, discrimination, and marginalization, a disproportionately larger percentage of LGBTQ youth have a greater risk of being homeless than their heterosexual counterparts. In this episode, Dr. Nicholas Forge and Dr. Robin Hardinger-Saunders discuss how their shared interest in homeless youth led to their examination of individuals identifying as LGBTQ with child welfare system involvement. They discussed their research, which focuses on identifying factors that can lead to being homeless, as well as the characteristics of the LGBTQ homeless youth population. Additionally, Drs. Forge and Hardinger Saunders explain why it is important that social workers understand the experiences of LGBTQ youth who are homeless and how this knowledge can help avoid re-traumatization. The episode concludes by emphasizing the need to consider the intersection between child welfare system involvement and homelessness, and how, through the formation of systematic partnerships, effective treatment and supports can be provided. Dr. Robin Hardinger Saunders has over 25 years of experience in the field of child welfare. She is the principal investigator and program director of the Title IV-E Child Welfare Education and Training Program in Georgia State University's School of Social Work. Dr. Nicholas Forge is clinical assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. His research focuses on homelessness among sexual and gender expansive identified youth and young adults, particularly in the area of child welfare involvement, service provision, and evidence-based practices. Doctors Hardinger Saunders and Forge were interviewed in March 2018 by Seventy Hall, who is a PhD candidate here at the UB School of Social Work. My name is Seventy. I'm here with Dr. Nicholas Forge and Dr. Robin Hardinger Saunders. Robin, did you want to start off telling me a little bit about your background and how you came to partner with Nicholas on this project? Sure, that's an excellent question. It was really a natural fit given our background. My primary area of research examines multi-level factors that contribute to child welfare issues and predict outcomes for children and families. 
I have over 25 years experience in the field of child welfare, including 11 of practice experience working for Chautauqua County Department of Social Services. My background is slightly different from Robin in that I don't necessarily have a child welfare background, but I have previous involvement with youth who identify as being homeless in terms of living in shelters, first in New York City and also additionally here in Atlanta. So how did you come to work together on this topic? Well, because of my child welfare background and looking at outcomes for youth, we know that there is a high population of children who have child welfare experience who are homeless. So seeing that as an outcome, a negative outcome for a child coming out of the child welfare system, that got me interested in the topic of homelessness and foster youth. Dr. Nicholas Forge is doing this work here in Atlanta, and I was interested in partnering with him. After you partnered, how did you get involved in your current research project with the Atlanta Youth Count? On our campus here at Georgia State University, we have colleagues who have a shared interest in the well-being of youth who are experiencing homelessness. And led by Drs. Eric Wright and Erin Rule in the Department of Sociology, several faculty members came together to discuss the issue and possibility of conducting a youth count and needs assessment. Robin and I knew that as social workers, we could bring our knowledge and perspective to the project. Thus, we became part of an interdisciplinary collaboration that really included the Department of Sociology, the School of Public Health, the School of Social Work within Georgia State University, as well as external university partners that included Emory University Public Health and Morehouse School of Medicine. In addition, we had numerous community partners that included 12 principal community-based providers. And we also included the expertise of youth who had previously experienced homelessness, which has been vital to the success of our project. So how specifically did you involve youth? We considered youth who had previously experienced homelessness really as experts in their own lives. And so we understood that they would be able to tell us initially exactly where homeless youth resided, what some of their issues may be, what potential questions should be asked of homeless youth. And so they helped us from the planning phase that included the planning of the survey instrument to the implementation phase where they directed us to areas in the metro Atlanta area where homeless youth were known to reside. And they also helped us understand exactly what some of the social structures that exist within youth populations who are experiencing homelessness. What does current research tell us about the population that you, you've worked with? There is actually little information about the population that we examined in our study. Just to give you a little background, 2015, approximately 21,000 youth in the United States aged out of the foster care system, meaning they were neither adopted or reunified with their family of origin. So over the past two decades, studies have consistently indicated a strong association between experiencing homelessness and having prior placement in the foster care system. So that's troubling. Youth who age out of foster care are among the populations of greatest risk of becoming homeless. With as many as half a youth experiencing homelessness or housing instability within 18 months of exit from the foster care system. So for me, my focus on outcomes for kids in the child welfare system sees this as very troublesome.
Now, for youth who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender questioning, or as non-heterosexual or gender expansive, the risk of becoming homeless or facing housing instability is greater than that faced by their cisgender heterosexual counterparts. Studies that indicated between 20 and 40 percent of youth experiencing homelessness identify as LGBTQ, which, you know, we see as a significant overrepresentation when you compare that to general population estimates. And although um, many LGBTQ youth come into foster care through traditional routes, meaning, you know, the child maltreatment by their biological parents or caregivers. They also come into the child welfare system under circumstances uniquely attributed to their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that would be things like harassment, rejection, alienation by parents or caregivers, or even other family members. So the referrals for child welfare services for LGBTQ youth may initially seem unrelated to their sexual and gender expansive identity, However, there is research that reveals that male treatment is primarily in response to youth sexual orientation or gender identity. In fact, around 30% of sexual and gender expansive youth in foster care reported experiencing violence after revealing this to their family members. That's a very high percentage, and we need to be concerned about that as child welfare professionals. Studies suggest that LGBTQ are actually 1.2 times more likely to be physically abused almost four times more likely to experience sexual abuse. We know that there's high rates of child welfare involved in the homeless population. We know that there's high rates of LGBTQ-identified youth in homeless populations. So the fact that both of these groups separately experience high rates of homelessness really led Nicholas and I into a discussion of whether LGBTQ youth who also have previous welfare experience were at an even greater disadvantage than our heterosexual cisgender peers. So we wanted to test this empirically, which is why we were led to the Atlanta Youth Count. Nicholas will talk a little bit about the questions that we ask in our research. I think that it's important to say first that the overarching study counted youth experiencing homelessness and surveyed their experiences and needs. The full sample was comprised of 693 homeless and runaway youth between the ages of 14 and 25 who were experiencing homelessness in Metro Atlanta at the time of the survey. But from that full sample, Robin and I were interested in identifying the number of LGBTQ-identified youth experiencing homelessness who had some form of prior child welfare involvement and we wanted to learn more about their experiences, both prior to becoming homeless and while they were experiencing homelessness. We were specifically interested in describing this subsample and the survey instrument contained that indicated whether participants had been in the foster care system due to abuse and or neglect, if they'd been in the foster care system due to juvenile delinquency, or if they had received any child welfare services other than foster care. Specifically, we included demographic information that included age, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender identity. We also asked participants the reason for and the length of time that they had been homeless. And we wanted to explore each participant's exposure to trauma. So a series of questions were asked that were related to abuse and victimization, exposure to violence, both in the home and also in their community of origin, as well as any experience with commercial sexual exploitation. Included measures of mental health problems, indicators of serious mental health challenges and health risk behaviors, such as substance abuse and risky sexual behavior. And we also wanted to understand 
some aspects of social support. So we included questions related to the number of family or friends or professionals that participants felt they could rely on, as well as membership in a street family. Could you explain how homelessness was defined? Youth who were homeless or had run away between the ages of 14 and 25, who were one, living independently with no consistent support from parents or other family members, and two, without a permanent stable residence at the time of the survey, were eligible to participate in the study. What were your findings? Well, we found that youth who had prior child welfare system involvement comprised 43% of the full Atlanta Youth Count sample. Within the child welfare system involved sample, 60% indicated that they had been in foster care because of previous abuse and or neglect. 38% had been in care because of juvenile delinquency or criminal behavior. And 43% reported receiving services from the child welfare system other than foster care involvement. Of those youth who had been in the foster care system, 11% were under the age of 21 and were eligible to return to care. A large percentage experienced a parent going to prison or jail. The child welfare system involved sample was comprised of respondents who were primarily black and male with a mean age of 21. Within the child welfare system involved sample, about 30% of youth self-identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or queer, and about 9% identified as transgender. Most child welfare system involved study participants about 62% reported living in Georgia when they first became homeless. And at the time of the survey, 44% of the respondents had been experiencing homeless for over six months, and over 60% of that sample reported being homeless between two and three times in the past three years. One-fifth of the sample reported a developmental learning disability, and over half had attained less than a high school education. We compared LGBTQ-identified youth with youth who identified as heterosexual and cisgender. And in terms of their pathway to homelessness and also the length of the time that they were homeless, we found that a third of youth who were LGBTQ-identified had been kicked out of their homes compared to 19.7% of youth who were heterosexual and cisgender. More youth who were heterosexual, cisgender, about a third reported being homeless due to family violence compared to 21% of youth who identified as LGBTQ. The majority experienced homelessness between one month to one year. However, approximately one third of youth who identified as LGBTQ had been homeless for more than one year, and that compared to approximately a quarter of youth who identified as heterosexual cisgender. Now, in terms of trauma experienced by our population, we found some pretty compelling results. Two-thirds of the youth who were LGBTQ and over one-half of youth were heterosexual cisgender reported experiencing child abuse. Additionally, 77% of those youth who were LGBTQ and 71% of youth who were heterosexual cisgender reported exposure to violence not only in their homes, but also in their um, neighborhood of origin. And we did find significant differences between youth who are LGBTQ and youth who were heterosexual cisgender around their experience with sexual violence as well. Sexual violence as a child and also sex trafficking and victimization while they were homeless. Over half of youth who identified as LGBTQ were victimized while they were homeless compared to one third of youth who were heterosexual cisgender. We also looked at mental health and risk behaviors 
And while we didn't find any significant differences between youth who identified as LGBTQ and youth who are heterosexual cisgender regarding their experiences with mental health problems or indicators of serious mental health, we did find that 45% of LGBTQ youth and 37% of youth who are cisgender self-identified that they had experienced a mental health problem. More youth who identified as LGBTQ, and that was actually 70%, reported using alcohol in the past, compared to about half of youth who were heterosexual cisgender. And although we didn't have a significant response, it is worth noting that both LGBTQ identified and heterosexual cisgender identified youth reported high rates of unprotected intercourse. Now, in terms of social support, we looked at who these youths went to for support while they were homeless. Overall, most youth who are LGBTQ identified adult friends as their main source of social support. This finding was similar for youth who are heterosexual cisgender. Almost one half of youth who are LGBTQ identified at least one professional contact as a source of support compared to one third of youth who are heterosexual cisgender. There are a couple of pertinent points relevant to the child welfare system here in Georgia that we would like to point out. Youth who age out of foster care often have not been taught basic life skills needed to achieve successful independent living. And among the youth in our sample, we found that 62% lived in Georgia at the time that they first became homeless. Now this is important because 11% who had been in foster care were of an age at the time of the study where they could have continued receiving services from the child welfare system to assist them with housing and other support such as mental health counseling, education and employment counseling. Furthermore, one-fifth reported a developmental learning disability and over half had not finished high school, with 65% of youth who had been in foster care and were between the ages of 18 and 21 at the time of study, they didn't have a high school diploma or a GED. And so it appears that for youth who are experiencing homelessness, the very system designed to promote safety, permanency and well-being has fallen short and really draws attention to the fact that youth fall through the relative safety net of mainstream services. We need to understand more about why youth who are, may be eligible to remain in care and receive services, such as finishing high school or going to college, decide not to. And I think for Robin and I, this is an important question that we need to include in our future research. Why is this an issue that social workers should be concerned about? Well, I think social workers in many areas of practice can encounter this, this population. Homeless service providers, social workers in the mental health field, medical social workers, and even school social workers or social workers who may be placed or embedded in law enforcement systems. Because homeless youth are on the street and they have unique needs, I think we have to be aware of the population that we're serving and that are out on the streets by themselves. Another issue is around trauma. Because of their trauma histories that were revealed in our findings, we feel strongly that all child-serving organizations should be trained in trauma-informed care to engage with this population. Looking at our findings, the reality is they're often met by a system that is neither competent nor equipped to address their needs. And it further subjects them to bias, discrimination, isolation, and also neglect from the caregivers within the child welfare system. Another thing to note that the bias discrimination that sexual and gender expansive youth face while in care are frequently intensified, actually, due to these intersections of identities 
to which they belong. Many youth in care who identify as LGBTQ are also youth of color or also have disabilities or mental health challenges. And that presents further barriers for permanence. Also, youth who identify as LGBTQ are less likely to achieve permanence. They're less likely to be reunified with their parents. They're less likely to be adopted, with transgender youth having the most difficult time. Our code of ethics charges us as social workers to challenge social injustices and discrimination that sexual and gender expansive youth face in the system that was created to protect them. We know that there's a distinct lack of acceptance and affirmation of the identities of sexual and gender expansive youth who are in foster care. Additionally, um, youth who come out have also experienced negative changes in how they are treated by caregivers once they have done this. Research has also shown that many sexual and gender expansive youth experience bullying, harassment, isolation from their peers, and even caseworkers and foster parents. So that is a concern as well. They're also more likely to be placed in congregate care and fortunately more likely to have multiple placements, which we know after years and years of research has negative outcomes for children and youth. This is an issue that social workers need to be concerned about because child welfare professionals and foster families need to be aware of the possibility that they have LGBTQ youth in their home. Also, be cognizant of the trauma that they may have already experienced before coming to the home due to their identity, making it imperative that they create an affirmative environment in the foster care system to avoid re-traumatization. And one of the other things that should be understood is that the stigma, rejection, discrimination, and victimization that sexual and gender expansive youth experience contribute to negative mental health outcomes. And as social workers, we have to be aware of that and be proactive in linking these kids to services. So what can social workers offer in this area to meet the challenges related to your current research? Social workers are uniquely positioned to understand and address the oftentimes complex issue that young people face. Our understanding of the system's perspectives really does offer a foundation for practice with this population, but it does take more than this to engage in competent practice. Social workers must frame their practice with cultural humility, never making assumptions about a young person and their experiences, and being open to empathic learning about youth identities and experiences. In addition, it's essential that we approach our work with youth from a trauma-informed lens. We know that a likelihood is that many youth who have been in the child welfare system and who are experiencing homelessness have experienced past trauma, and oftentimes multiple traumas within multiple systems. Our efforts to assist youth must be aware of this, and we should not re-traumatize the young person. Ideally, preventing children from entering the child welfare system should be our starting point. A child should not have to enter the child welfare system or experience homelessness because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. But we know that sadly that that's not the case today. However, social workers can take a lead role in ensuring that once in care, children are placed in homes with welcoming and accepting adults. In addition, social workers can assist others who come into contact with youth and young adults, from addressing the readiness of potential foster parents who want to truly welcome a child into their home, to advocating for homeless service providers to practice affirming and trauma-informed care. So what are some of the practical implications of your research? Youth who are LGBTQ were overrepresented in our sample. That's actually similar to findings from previous studies of youth experiencing homelessness. Our results reinforce previous research that indicates it's common for youth who are LGBTQ to report being kicked out of their home as their primary reason for experiencing homelessness. 
This was actually the case for one-third of the youth um, in our study, which may indicate more complex challenges presented to child welfare professionals. So when they're engaging with families who reject their child based on sexual orientation or gender identity, we really have to have the training and the skills to engage families in potentially uncomfortable discussions with families around affirming the identity and meeting the needs of their children. We can't just assume that once a child is out of the house that they can't return. I think as social workers, we really need to do our job in engaging with parents. All youth, irrespective of sexual orientation or gender identity, experience high rates of individual trauma and exposure to violence in their homes and neighborhoods. This is alarming. It again highlights the cumulative trauma that youth in our sample sustained. And we found an exorbitant number of youth who had been sexually victimized both as children and while they were homeless. A particular concern is that more youth who are LGBTQ experience child abuse, sexual violence as a child, and victimization while living on the street compared to heterosexual cisgender. And despite all participants having some form of prior child welfare system involvement, youth who are LGBTQ reported higher rates of physical or sexual revictimization and substance abuse. And this is really a clear indication of the need for targeted interventions to engage youth while they're living on the streets, while at the same time doing so with the full understanding that many youth consider the streets safer than their experiences with service providers and programs. I think a first step to ensure service providers create spaces for youth who are LGBTQ identified is to evaluate organizational culture and practices. While housing-based services and interventions designed specifically for LGBTQ-identified youth are few and far between, and the availability of best practices is quite limited, all providers should adopt identity-affirming practices within a trauma-informed practice framework. Youth experiencing homelessness utilize social networks that oftentimes include social media. Youth serving agencies can create identity-affirming messaging through social media, through agency branding, and through community outreach. There are actually two overarching contexts that are relevant for discussion in our study, the child welfare system and homeless providers and services. Too often, each are siloed as separate entities with little acknowledgement of the intersection of each that young people often experience and the supportive role they play in their lives. Our findings indicate that over half of youth who are LGBTQ in our study identified a professional contact as a form of social support. While we're not able to really understand or know which professions these supportive adults identified, it's common for youth who are formerly in foster care to continue contact with and feel support from adults in the child welfare system. I really do think that tells us we have to pay attention to our relationships with these kids when they are in care because it does make a difference. Child welfare and policy advocates are challenged to prevent the pathways to system involvement that begins with the youth family of origin. We really have to better educate child welfare professionals, including foster parents, on their critical role in the lives of LGBTQ youth in their care to avoid re-traumatization and further victimization of these kids. I think to do this, child welfare systems need to implement a strategic foster parent training and recruitment to attend to the general well-being of LGBTQ youth in their lives so that they're developing life skills well before they age out of foster care. One of the other things that is worth bringing up is the Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act, which was enacted in September 2014. This requires Title IV-E agencies to identify and document and respond to children in the child welfare system who are at risk or who are currently trafficking victims. If we look at our findings, studies suggest that 
this act is a excellent first step in acknowledging the high rates of sexual victimization among the child welfare system involved youth in order to prevent the trafficking of high-risk youth. Community partners face challenges of engaging homeless youth in services that are trauma-informed. Child welfare organizations, homeless service providers, law enforcement are finding many of these youth were victimized on the streets. So I think to have law enforcement at the table would be really important. Also the education system. We see how many of the kids did not have a high school diploma. I think we all need to work together to develop and implement prevention initiatives to eliminate homelessness among youth, in particular these youth who are aging out or running away from foster care. Youth have to be actively engaged in services that address their past trauma. I, I don't think we can wait until something happens or there's some event that emerges in the lives of these youth. I think we have to be proactive and get them involved in mental health services and practical activities that develop life skills, social skills, even job readiness skills, ones that help them develop support systems so that they have somebody that they can turn to. One other additional point is that we found that 11% of the youth who we interviewed were actually eligible to return to care. And so since youth can remain in foster care until the age of 21, and so many of the youth in our sample chose to leave foster care, it's important to understand this trend further. We need to understand why exactly they decided to leave care and what changes need to be made to the system in order to encourage them to remain in care if doing so would mean that they are continuing to live in a supportive and affirming environment. So what's next for you both? We plan to continue our collaboration in a couple of different ways. And one of those ways is that this year we're, we're actually doing the Atlanta Youth Count and Needs Assessment study again. And so we're going to replicate the study, but recognizing that we've learned some things that, about how we could have asked questions differently or changed the methodology to be more inclusive of youth in terms of geographic area. And so this summer we plan on collecting more data. Another thing that um, we are in the process of doing is examining the experiences of sexual and gender minority youth who were previously in the child welfare system. And this is more of a qualitative pilot study that we'd like to do. And we really want to know more about their experiences around their perceptions of safety in the child welfare system, their perceptions of institutional discrimination, their treatment by staff and foster parents, numbers of placements. We really want to get a better look at their experiences within that child welfare system. And I think that that will provide important information, especially my work that I do with the Title IV-E Child Welfare Education and Training Program. We train students to work in the child welfare system, and it would be an important piece when we're talking about trauma-informed practice and we're talking about changing the way we do things in the child welfare system, I think this would be an important element to add. Thank you for joining us today, Nicholas and Robin. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here and we appreciate the opportunity to speak on a topic that we feel very passionate about. You've been listening to Dr. Nicholas Forge and Dr. Robin Hardinger-Saunders discussed the experiences of homeless LGBTQ youth with child welfare involvement. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at In Social Work.
Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.